You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I'm Sarah Custer, Associate Editor for Creation here at THE. Happy Thanksgiving to all of my compatriots celebrating in the US today. And while it's not a national holiday in the UK, and there's nary a tuft of stuffing in sight, Today is still a special day for the UK higher education community because tonight we will announce the winners of the Times Higher Education Awards. Our annual event is the Oscars of Higher Education, and this year we're able to get together in person once again to celebrate the amazing work universities have done during a year of unprecedented challenges. This year we've opened up entries to universities in Ireland as well as the UK, and we asked a few of our shortlisted nominees to explain their success in categories like outstanding community engagement, Outstanding Research Supervisor of the Year, and Outstanding Support for Students. Head over to timeshighereducation.com to see advice and insights from this year's nominees in our spotlight celebrating the best in UK and Irish higher education. Now, for today's episode, my colleague Miranda Prynne and I caught up with a few of last year's THE Awards winners to hear how their work has developed and any advice they might give to others working towards similar goals. First up is Tara Moore, who won our 2020 Outstanding Research Supervisor of the Year Award. Tara is a professor of personalized medicine at the University of Ulster and chief of research and innovation at Avellino USA. So Tara, you were the recipient of our Research Supervisor of the Year Award last year for the Times Higher Education Awards. What's been the response from you um, after a year now? How has it been for you personally um, to have that accolade? Uh, Okay, it's amazing. I was absolutely delighted to get it. Um, It does influence other prizes and awards. And I I recently was honored with the the Pierce Medal Lecture. Um, Mm -hmm. It's like a large refractive surgery consortium that recognized someone for innovation and research. and, And they definitely mentioned the, the Times Higher Research Supervisor Outstanding Supervisor Award. So I, I definitely think it has influenced other positive outcomes in my career. But for me, I think it also promoted a lot of inward reflection. And, you know, yeah, you're nominated for something like that and you're awarded it, but it certainly makes you think, am I definitely a really good supervisor? Am I definitely doing a good job with this? So it, it, it has made me reflect and look at my students and it's, important for me that my actual students think I'm a really good supervisor and I know I was nominated by all those past students but it's made me look at my present students and and make sure I'm supervising them to the best of my ability and during the pandemic and a lack of travel and a a lot less contact between students and supervisors I'm just more and more conscious and I just hope like uh, yeah I I, I retain that standard and live Mm. up to that reward and award. Tell us what you've been doing since you won the award um, and how has it been going in with the uncertainty of the pandemic? Ah, goodness, we're, we're still going ahead with all our research projects across uh, gene therapy, CRISPR-Cas9 and siRNA, you know, for the blinding eye disease. So that's continuing and uh, that has been doing really well as recently there have been some of those therapies approved by NICE and paid for in the NHS. So our work has continued in the lab, mm. other than the very initial lockdown when everywhere closed down. Uh, 
as a group, a research group, we were very agile and we pivoted quickly and, and started to do a lot of COVID clinical evaluation work and just because of our experience with clinical trials and ethics and studies and, and that type of diagnostic lateral flow and, and PCR and lamp tests, we've kind of worked for so many companies now and my research group have all been involved and they've been able to gather so many new skills, so many additional skills. So we've been really, mm. really busy, really, really mm. busy and uh, a great, it's great when we have a group of students and postdocs and postgraduate researchers that are so keen to be getting involved and to help. It's been lovely to see they're so willing to, you know, go really out of their way and, and, and work in COVID-related projects. So yeah, it's been, mm. it's been a a learning time for us as a group. It sounds like you've you've had a real uh, silver lining to the pandemic for your your research group, and I know that I guess some of the examples that you just gave there um, are are quite indicative of the the type of researchers that you um, are working with in terms of well in terms of the research that you're doing. It's often quite linked to industry, and I'm just wondering how that is perhaps reflected in your supervising style. Yeah, we're very industrial-led, industrial-driven. We're very influenced by the needs of industry, spanning from our main partner in Avellino and then our secondary drug delivery partner in SISAF. So that, that company and their pipeline of products and their need and want to develop a therapy into a first-in-man treatment for personalized medicine gene therapy, uh, they dictate uh, and fund everything in terms of our work. I also do a lot of work with Randox, a big diagnostic company, mm -hmm. looking at biomarkers and we look at across all different diseases and we have an industrial PhD academy at Ulster University. So again, there we partner up with that company and they come to us and say, we'd really look to look at renal failure, we'd like to look at prostate cancer, we'd like to look at cardiology and heart conditions. So we follow their lead and uh, it means that you have job security for the PhDs because they then work with the company. They mm. have some ownership and some buy-in into the biomarkers and that new diagnostic product. And then they can go back into that industry and that company and work in that area with all that specialist training embedded within their PhD for any future jobs. Um, mm. A lot of a lot of companies came to us with the early diagnostics that they want clinical evaluations in for COVID, and as you know, um, there was a lot of money to be made for companies selling COVID antigen tests, PCRs, or indeed, um, you know, antibody antigen lateral flows. So we've worked with a lot of companies to help them get clinical evaluations done, get CE marking. So yeah, a lot a lot of industrial work. Um, I think for a PhD student, it's nice to have that feeling that, that your PhD is contributing to something that will reach a customer, a client, addresses a medical need. So I think that's a lot of uh, like motivation for a student to get up every morning and to continue to come in and do their PhD because they see the disease, they see the need for it, they see the real-life application of it. Um, and I think a lot of our group really thrive on that and come to work with us as a research group because they see that clinical application and they're all hands-on with patients as well. And we have a, mm. a, an eye heart project where I have one student who's in first thing in the morning in cardiology in operating theatres with a 
patients have had major adverse cardiac events and she's imaging their eye and taking bloods and working out is there any way to predict why they had a heart attack. So, I mean, some of our most dedicated students are those that are in at the cold face kind of with patients and with sick people really mm. trying to make sure their research achieves something which is lovely for them. You know, I think that's great motivation. Mm. Yeah, seeing firsthand those real world applications of all the, the hard work yeah. that they're doing must be incredibly fulfilling for them. Yeah, um, from yeah. your winning submission uh, last year, there was a, some mention about um, kind of working with researchers uh, at a distance remotely and perhaps even students who haven't come down the traditional academic pipeline. Have you got any tips for supervisors who are working with um, students with those particular profiles? So yeah, I had long-standing, you know, distance PhDs where they were were with industrial partners and they were conducting their research in industry or in clinics where they were patient-facing. So I've had a lot of experience with that, but I actually think now almost every research supervisor has been doing Mm. that and has experienced that over the last year and a half because of the pandemic and they've all managed it really well and students and supervisors alike have done well in progressing with that and adapting to that new way. Um, Initially, I think some supervisors would have been apprehensive and thought, goodness, how does Tara have all these students and how these students that she doesn't see or that are from a distance? But um, I've always been very, you know, online, talking to them, emailing them. And even now, I would rarely travel to the lab on a daily or even weekly basis like I used to two years ago for my own campus students and we do a lot of meetings online and I think we're all much more conscious about our time and how we spend our time now and maybe the pandemic Mm. has made us take a look at that and think well how much time was I traveling when I didn't need to so hopefully everyone has learned that there there are some uh, valuable lessons learned from the pandemic in terms of working patterns both for supervisors and for students and you know, students don't always need to be in the lab. If they need to be in to do something hands-on, it's all about them knowing that they can go to the library or go home and read or access learning material elsewhere. Just my final question for you, Tara. Looking at the other side of the, the supervisor-teacher relationship, what advice would you give to researchers about how they should manage the relationship that they have with their own supervisor? Well, um, I think you need to know that you can get on with your supervisor you need to have a good relationship with them or if there are issues or personality clashes or something that's happening within that relationship that's not working you just need to be open about it and and and, you know come up with these are the things or these are the problems or these are the issues that I'm seeing but could we do this or this differently or could we communicate this way or could I have this working pattern or or just talk about it, just be honest and open about, I can't go at 100 miles an hour, I can't work at the level you expect me to work at, but I can do this and this. So I think it's about openness. Um, I think it's about researchers also, really also realizing this is a time when I have the opportunity to learn, to travel, to go to different labs, and to work out, you know, what's the history of their other, you know, colleagues, their other peers, what did other PhD students perhaps do? Um, what made them successful, where did they end up and be proactive I think in going to a, a supervisor and saying what they want rather than just being like a passive partner in the relationship and just being mm. maybe told do A, B and C. 
you can always tell a really good student because after the first six months, you know, that's the PhD student that's proactive, that's coming to you, that's saying, look at this paper, look at this lab, look at this group, we could do this, or I want to do this, or can we do this? And that's when you know you've got a good student because they are proactive. So a general piece of information would be be proactive, be it in new techniques, transfer skills, going to new labs, learning new things, or starting up new things in the lab you're in. So joining me is Judith Francois, a senior lecturer in clinical leadership and management at Kingston University's School of Nursing. And Judith won THE's Most Innovative Teacher of the Year Award last year. I'm hoping, Judith, you can tell us a bit about the reflection toolkit and storytelling methods that you had developed that are what won you the 2020 award. It seems such a... Um... A long time ago, doesn't it? <laughs> time sort of, uh, sort it of does. <laughs> <past>. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yeah. So, uh, reflection toolkit. The toolkit actually, it's it sort of emerged and evolved after a couple of things. Actually, one of the things was working with when working with students, uh, nursing students, and I had an experience where um, one of the students who I initially, as a personal tutor, had. Um, had, had met and was doing really well, sort of a, a high flyer, sort of over the period of time that I was supporting her, you know, the, her, her grades had gone down. And, you know, we'd have these meetings and she'd and ask her how everything was going and, you know, how she was, et cetera, et cetera. And look, there was nothing. And then just at the point of when we were, we would actually just go to have to, to um, ask her to leave the course, she disclosed to me just numerous things in her, her life which were really had been really important in terms of us as a university supporting her um, through her studies through a, a sort of a series of life crises now as it was for that student we as she couldn't you know it was, it was it was really too late for her she actually had to leave the course but it made me reflect on the sort of questions that I was asking my students and you know, what was missing because you know I'd met I'd done all the things I thought were inadvertent commas sort of right but so obviously something was missing and you know sort of after sort of a lot of thought I thought actually this is around agendas and who and power bases without you know rightly or or wrongly and that actually we needed to change that that power base when um the you know the tutors were meeting with the students so the the actual discussion or the start of the discussion at least was was student-led because we talk about things being student-led but we actually start all the time so it was a, it was a question of say finding something where the students could actually come and start the conversation and um and we would emerge from there so i i and the the easiest way to try to do that was actually to to um use the bart which um there, we, we actually had an exhibition that was with St George's uh, University, which we're also part of, we're sort of a joint faculty. Yeah. And I contacted the artist who was doing that, and um, it was they had lots of postcards. And um, we contacted through the artist. There was a several artists being in, you know, in the community, actually some nursing staff, just various artists who contributed to this idea of artist caring. And 
we were able through this sort of contact actually contact all the you know or a number of artists actually depending on how many photos we wanted um who agreed to be part of this project and they produced their 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 postcards and we used that as the pictorial element for the uh, reflection reflection tool and and students actually were able to so, so each tutors would have a pack of the cards and when the students came they would choose a card uh, about how they were feeling. So the students were initially, obviously, you know, prior to that session, taught how to use the cards, the principles of it, et cetera. So they yeah. had a practice in their in their groups. Um, and then when they came to do it, they actually understood what they had to do. So they understood the steps. So we would we would have the steps and we would say, well, you know, go through the steps with them. Um, okay, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? Et cetera. And what actually happened was students, we actually learned so much more about students when we didn't have the agenda um, and you know they just needed space to to talk which was uh, and for them to to actually unpick what indeed was happening for them because you know when they're coming to meet someone within the university setting all they're thinking about was university and scripts and am I doing well but they weren't really thinking about you know who they were and what what was needed so so the, sort of the feedback from tutors was actually you know that they were just finding that they just learned so much more about the students and, and, and it felt a lot more student student led. Um, and then we used this sort of the tool sort of even further. So we used it as a reflection with uh, some trained nurses. Uh, and on a um, this particular one was a one for black and minority ethnic nurses within a mental mental health trust. And again, the tool proved to be you know, trans, transferable right across to um, the trained staff as well. And so they were able to, to use it to assess how they were feeling in any one particular incident and, and while it was um, occurring. So what we encouraged them to do, and you know, those, the, when we originally started with the personal tutors, it was, it was really capturing, it was the same principle, it was capturing how the students felt absolutely then, there and then, not how they felt yesterday, not how they felt, thought they might feel tomorrow, or it was just about, it was like now, how do you feel now, and, um, and getting them in touch with those, those feelings. And so this, it was the same with the, the train staff, we used that, you know, so if they had, if you have an incident, think about what you would do now, you know, what's needed now. And we had the same sorts of results there as well with, with, with nurses actually saying it just enabled them to sort of take a moment and, and capture what they were feeling. And most importantly, with the, the stool, which has got, you know, sort of a series of steps, which include, um, you know, what does this mean for you sort of like now? What is it that you, you've got in your gift to, to sort out? And, and I think it's, it's that, that sort of it's like, you know, it gives people ideas about what they can do in the present time. Um, and in order to help relieve some of that stress or anxiety. Yeah, um, so it's sort of providing a framework almost for people yeah. to understand their own responses, emotional responses and so on mm-hmm. to certain situations. And I guess in nursing, that is a particularly pertinent thing <laughs> that you need yeah. to develop. And I suppose because the, the other angle which the tool also did was enable people because it wasn't all all bad. <laughs> it wasn't you know the trigger wasn't it being bad. It was about how they were now. So so yeah. some people they were you know felt brilliant. You know? Yeah. And it it enabled those people to unpick what was it in place that enabled them 
to feel brilliant? You know, what were the what were the factors? So equally understanding what the factors are when you feel great um, helps you also understand, you know, what factors might be missing when you don't feel so great. Yeah, of course. You've sort of mentioned how this or slight touched upon how this developed, starting with I'm linking with the artists that produced these mm. postcards. I just wonder how how has it evolved over the course of moving everything online and now indeed moving everything back to face-to-face teaching or a large proportion of things are back to face-to-face. How have you kind of adapted it? Yeah, we, we haven't tended to use the tool in exactly the same way. In fact, actually, I suppose there's two different things. I'm actually about to do um, another project with the, uh, the trained nurses um, and they are, they've been able to use it individually. Um, so quite a lot of the time people are now able to use it um, with or without they might use their own pictures or their own sort of as a as a means of triggering them or sometimes people use the, the framework of the tool to, to get themselves yeah. into that into that space so it's been a, an ongoing tool that's that people who have been on the program have done several programs with that uh, particular mental health trust and so I think we're on to program four so um, they've been able to use it all the way through I couldn't I can't tell you how they've used it all the way through covid we haven't actually got that that data um but just sort of on reviews from when we're starting up this new program it's certainly something that they they seem to have been able to use and this is the nhs trust themselves yes that's the nhs trust um within nursing we haven't i think we've we haven't used tool in exactly the same way at all and i think that's primarily because there was so much going on. I think there was a lot of, I think at the, at the time, that, you know, there were so many different things that the students needed to understand and, and we didn't understand. So we weren't particularly, well, we were just waiting for what the next government advice was, you know, who was going, yeah, in, of who was going in, um, you know, uh, who we needed to remove from practice. So it was, I think there was a lot of things going on. So, we, so we're now back, I think, into a better space in, um, in September. And... I think one of the things that's coming out, certainly for personal tutors, is the need for personal tutors to have uh, more sort of coaching, understand a bit more about coaching principles. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's sort of moving away from, I suppose, this expectation that there is a sort of lot of onus, you know, you know, how are your students doing, how are they, how are they uh, getting on with their, their essays, are they failing? You know, so there's a lot of questions that I suppose we go in as personal tutors asking and really, it's not easy for people to necessarily just take a step back because that's not how, I suppose, tutors have been taught to behave, really. So this yeah. idea of, of, of taking a step back has been, uh, has been sort of really taken on, on and, and recognised that even in that, that actually the tutors themselves will need some sort of coaching skills. And that's we're just starting to do that now. And just to dig into the detail of how it works, so these images that people, whether it is sort of nursing students or indeed NHS healthcare workers themselves, they will select an image and then be encouraged to sort of talk around why they've chosen it and why it represents how they feel. Is that the idea? Yes, yeah. So so they literally just select an image that they're drawn to, say, okay. what's this image? And then they will... Uh, actually, I'll give you um, I'll give you an example, which might sort of work. The I, I'd got a student who um, was 
actually out in practice and, and she'd had a sort of major incident happen um which was going to be involved you know sort of police etc so it's a very serious incident mm. um and um and I went out there and I spent an, an hour and a half talking to her and I, and I could just see from her face that she was saying yes and yes and yes and I was thinking yeah but there's something else here that you're not saying and she didn't seem to know what it was um so um we were in a staff room and we we um, opened up this magazine and there was a picture of Bill Cosby um, who was sort of surrounded by sort of press and he was being led by some uh, security guards, I think, his security guards, etc. Um, and, you know, he's blind now. Um, and she said, oh, she said, this is me. And, uh, and I said, and she said, oh, this is me. She said, I'm being led by lots of people and I haven't got a clue where I'm going. And so, and so we sort of explored, well, I said, well, what is it that you, you want? You know, what is it that you're, you're thinking you're needing it, like the here and the now? And she said, well, I want to know what's going to happen in a year's time. So all the things that we've been talking about was in two weeks' time, in this week, and this, but what she was like a long-term person, and she needed to know in, in, in a year's time, what would this look like? What would the situation look like? And so I was able to tell her what that would look like in a, in a year's time, you know, what was, and that's what she needed. But yeah. she hadn't been able to express that without using that pictorial and going through that process. You know, what is it you need now? You know, yes, yeah. this is the feelings of what is it you need now? And then what, what do we need to do? So what we needed to do was actually, I, sort of, I, I gave her some advice about what would happen and also gave her some advice about some other places that she could go. She wanted to know about um, uh, sort of NMC hearings and that she could actually go along and see some of these NMC hearings uh, as a public view, uh, as a, from a public perspective, because they were, they were open. It was, it was going to involve an NMC hearing, um, which was a bit of practice. So, so she was able to understand exactly what it was, and she just was completely reassured. So it gives, this sort of gives an example just of how, you know, it can just take you to the space. And, and despite the fact that I talked to her, and it was for about an hour and a half, you know, talking about all sorts of different things, and she didn't know what she wanted until we, we went through that picture. Yeah, uh, well, the interesting thing about her was that um, that, that this Bill Cosby is obviously a black man, um, and she was a white twenty-year-old student. Um, it's amazing the way something can guide or trigger the brain to those self-realizations. Yeah. As you say, you sometimes need something to guide those thoughts to to lead to that realization. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that this toolkit has been specifically designed with black and minority ethnic students in mind? Um, well, it was, it, it was, it, it was just generally for personal tutors. So that was, yeah. it went for, that would be white and black students. But then it, then when I went out in practice, it was for BME nurses in practice. Right. Used it. I just wondered what, what do you think are top line? I mean, key ingredients for a really inclusive curriculum or programme? Um, I think, uh, I, th- I think, that in terms of the even the word inclusive, I suppose it's about who and how, and that avoiding what I call the generalization of this idea that if you encapsulate or, or introduce something new, that it will be fine for everyone. Mm. So um, it's always remembering, even though you, you put a new initiative and you're hoping to capture more people, you won't necessarily capture um, everyone because they're not all the same. And, um, and, and then I suppose the other thing is about understanding or accepting that we all have um, uh, parts of us that make us um, do things which are not inclusive. Um, mm. and, and so not thinking that because you've got all the information that you have all the 
or you think you have all the information, that you have all the answers. So I suppose it's about being open to the possibility of what I'm what I'm missing. Uh, and and the other thing I would say is about having the conversations. You can only check if things are working the way that you hope they're work, working by have that, having those individual conversations with whoever whoever's involved. Professor David Green, you are the Vice Chancellor and Chief Executive at the University of Worcester, which was the winner of our Outstanding Contribution to Equality, Diversity and Inclusion, which you won for a whole of university approach project. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what that project was? Well, the whole university approach is one where instead of saying, for example, that we have uh, a pro-vice-chancellor and perhaps a small department of the university who's responsible for uh, including students with impairments, mobility impairments, for example, we say that uh, questions of inclusion, diversity and equality are for the whole university to address because all aspects of the university need to be welcoming to people uh, and inclusive uh, regardless of any protected characteristic um, uh, or particular, uh, to stick with this example, impairment. Uh, and that's meant that uh, our students who, for example, are in halls of residence have the ability, uh, if they're using a wheelchair, to visit their friends with no impairment whatsoever on the fourth floor of a hall of residence. And that when we designed halls of residence that we thought very carefully about making sure that every room has a wheelchair turning circle in it. Not every room will, of course, be occupied by somebody who's using a wheelchair, but why should somebody who's using a wheelchair find themselves at a disadvantage when they're uh, visiting uh, a friend? So um, it's that approach, and it's that approach across a range of university policies, widening participation, uh, gender equality, uh, would be uh, other examples. And this approach over a number of years has led to us being successful. So we have, for instance, since the gender pay statistics have been being published in the UK, we've been the best university in the country for fair gender pay. And uh, there are other examples. We built a sports hall in 2013. It was completed. Many other universities have sports halls. I dare say virtually every university has a sports hall. But we actually have the only indoor sports hall in the UK which has been purpose created to include the wheelchair athlete. Um, and uh, that has uh, meant a great deal to those uh, students who uh, have an impairment because, for example, they've been involved in a car crash when a teenager. Uh, mm. So it's that approach, and I think it's the results of that approach, uh, Sarah, which have uh, contributed to the Times Higher Education and Advance HE um, being kind enough to make us the inaugural award winners in this very important area, which is so mm. important for the future of universities as well as our uh, current contribution to society. Mm, absolutely. And the pandemic especially revealed quite a few inequalities within HE, 
especially you mentioned gender, but a, a different angle to gender and um, female academics, especially being impacted greater on that because of care responsibilities, but also for students about the digital divide. And it exacerbated some existing ones that we already saw in higher education before the pandemic began. I'm wondering how uh, the University of Worcester has responded to these challenges over the last 20 or so months. I, well, uh, there's a good question. So on the digital divide, I'm sure, as with many other universities, we immediately recognized that this would be a problem for a significant number of our students. Uh, our, our university recruits the vast majority of our students come to us uh, from backgrounds which aren't privileged. Uh, the highest proportion of students we've ever got from uh, independent or private schools has been 3% uh, of a cohort, and as you know, 8% of the children in the country are educated uh, privately, rather more actually in, in England. Uh, and we have um, uh, a lot of students with very little money and very poor study facilities uh, in terms of a family home, as well, of course, as, as young people coming to us from care. So we immediately uh, bought a lot of laptops and made sure that uh, they were available, um, uh, spent some time trying to ensure that there was good digital connectivity. Uh, we have the benefit that our library is the only one in the country which is university and public library. So yeah. actually throughout the pandemic, our library has been the most open of any library in the country providing, of course, excellent facilities for anybody who's within travel to study uh, range of us. Um, and uh, that's also helped people with digital connectivity. And there was just a sort of great deal of patient uh, working through individuals, person by person, uh, trying to make sure that they had the study resources available to them. And in terms of caring responsibilities, mm. uh, I think, again, like many universities, we, we run our uh, our own nursery, which is significantly used by staff. It's also was originally set up for students, and there is still some student use of it, but it's uh, mostly used by um, children of staff members, including many years ago. Uh, I, my children uh, both went there um, for a period of time, both of my daughters. And uh, uh, we've, again, we've just tried to uh, deal with this uh, person by person uh, not putting any unreasonable workload on any individual colleague. And to the best of my knowledge, that's been uh, fully successful. Um, mm. uh, so it's a question of, you know, every every head of school, every head of department in the university um, really paid attention to this because gender equity uh, is something which is a sort of, it's it's runs through the culture of the university now. And it's, um, I, I wouldn't say it's taken for granted, but it's very high priority. And so people have started to think differently. Um, and uh, that's been, you know, that's paid a, we, we've benefited from that greatly in negotiating the pandemic. The topic of equality, diversity and inclusion is one that um, a lot of people can recognize as something that's really important um, to get right. Um, but I think quite a few people are perhaps still struggling on, on just how to get it right and even perhaps have a large fear of failure. Do you have any recommendations or suggestions on, on uh, how to establish robust and sustainable EDI strategies? Uh, yes. I think the first thing to recognize is that these, these are deep issues in society and there is a battle going on every day. 
and the thing is you want to be engaged in the battle um, uh, to uh, try to have a create a society which is fair, just, and equal. Um, and you will constantly be learning in this. There will be change. Uh, yesterday's solution will not necessarily be today's, um, but we should all be engaged in the struggle to ensure that prejudice plus power um, uh, no longer turns into the reality of discrimination uh, and uh, deep-seated injustice. So we have to challenge prejudices, um, but we also have to make absolutely certain, and this is a responsibility for the universities, that where we have power, that um, prejudice is playing no part in decision-making. So that's very important in, for example, promotion schemes. It's very important in student selection. Uh, it's um, And you really, uh, when you come to try to tackle uh, discrimination and injustice, uh, you want to look at it in every area uh, of the university. And that's why we have come to having a whole university approach. It's not enough to have an equality, diversity, and inclusion committee. And we all know that higher education is full of universities who've won many Athena Swan awards and yet yeah. have the most enormous gender pay gaps. How is that possible? Well, the answer is that they they didn't translate having excellent Athena Swan projects into a whole university approach to tackle uh, uh, discrimination um, because the statistics would, would show them that uh, the projects have been unsuccessful. So the thing to do is to um, you know, say every area ha has got to be uh, involved in making a change and then you just discuss it, it becomes normal uh, and the culture improves actually and becomes much less uh, tense and difficult um, because you, you've made you've made a lot of progress, and people can realise that um, uh, that uh, everybody is being given uh, the opportunity to be being treated fairly, which is what you want in society, isn't it? Hi there, I'm joined today by Sarah Baldwin, Director of Student Support Services at Nottingham Trent University. And Sarah led the team that won the 2020 THE Award for Outstanding Support for Students. So I'm hoping you can tell me a bit about the initiative that I believe focused on sexual violence prevention that led to your award win. Hello, thank you and thanks, uh, thanks for having me. Um, Pleasure. Yeah. We won the award and we were so pleased to win the award because we thought it was such an important thing to do at Nottingham Trent in terms of recognising that sexual violence reporting was increasing um, across the country and we wanted to look at how we could encourage reporting and support our students at Nottingham Trent. Um, so we looked at, a, you know, very strategically actually about how we could um, join people together to make it the most sort of impactful and effective um, consent um, programme and um, sexual violence programme that we could and we did that by um, joining up with um, other providers so we set up the sexual violence action network with Nottingham University and external providers um, and that meant that we were really well placed to have um, longevity and uh, really good planning in terms of supporting our students and um, changing culture and supporting that whole agenda of um, 
respect and consent across university students. So was it focused quite a lot on sort of educating the students or much more on the reporting and finding avenues for advice and support if necessary? So it did both of those things. So it looked at uh, respect and consent and, and sort of changing culture around that. It looked at bringing people together so that we could uh, do that sort of in the whole uh, community across Nottingham um, and increase those um, important messages, but also so that we could support students really effectively and that we had the right uh, links and networks with external and internal staff students and external providers so that we could support students really effectively so it did both of those things and included um bystander training staff training um very very visual easy ways to refer um and then this year we have rolled out consent training for first years that's we're a month in now yeah i was going to ask actually about the level of training necessary it sounds like that was one of the focus areas you've just mentioned that that's obviously developed this year to include consent can you talk a bit about any other ways in which this has evolved since your award win a year ago so we we tried to thread it through everything we do and make it really important so the consent training is really important for holding a position within the university for instance um, we try to make it so that students understand why it's important and a really supportive um, environment I mean, really, the consent training was the was the biggest thing that came out of it, because I think we were quite ambitious in rolling out, although we are avoiding the word mandatory in some areas, rolling out what is effectively a timetabled session for every first year student. Um, and that's that's been challenging. Yeah. Uh, and we are following up students that don't attend and allowing students to rebook and, and just the, the, the level of that, you know, training 10,000 students around 10,000 students is really challenging. Um, that has been, to be honest, the main thing that's come out of the work that we've done. But we continue to develop our work in terms of having um, awareness weeks, uh, making sure that um, we are encouraged. I mean, our reporting has gone up. Um, yeah. Just over 200 students uh, reported uh, sexual violence and we supported them last year. Wow. So we and that's really positive. Um, but the consent training is leading to more um, we're seeing already. So it's really it's really good that students are coming forward and talking to about talking to us about that. Um, and then we need to look at how we support students and what what's new, what's coming out, because different things happen all the time. It's you always have to be really re responsive and agile, I think, in higher education. Um, because students tell you things that are impacting on them and you find ways to report them and it's in, uh, support students and it's important to get that right. It's also, it sort of highlights slightly terrifying or it shines a light on the slightly terrifying realisation that so much has also gone unreported across you know, society as a whole, not just higher education, but those figures. It's positive they're now being reported. Yeah, and, and whilst we knew we were taking a risk in terms of being criticised for having um, fairly high figures in terms of reporting, we knew that the reporting was accurate and, and that, you know, things were happening and we needed to support students, but only by supporting students and bringing it, you know, into the, into the front and foremost of students' mind could we make it, make that cultural change. You've mentioned that training that number of students is a challenge in itself but have there been any other kind of key challenges actually in student support more generally not 
necessarily specifically on this topic in the last 12 months, which clearly have thrown all sorts of new factors into the equation. What have been the key things you feel students have been grappling with where you've needed to provide that extra support? So, I mean, I think students have done an amazing job at being adaptable and coping during the pandemic. And I don't think people say that enough. Um, however, there has been heightened anxiety and things have been done differently. So um, a lot of support has been, um, been given uh, remotely. So that's been, that's been a challenge for us, suddenly moving our support or quite quickly moving our support from face to face to remote, particularly some of the uh, mental health um, disabled students allowances support has been a real challenge and the team have done an amazing job. Um, but what we've found is that we've managed to, in the last two years, double the amount of sessions that we can offer students and the demand is reasonably high. So, for instance, in the first seven weeks of term, we delivered over 500 hours of uh, mental health support. Um, but we've also got really high satisfaction. So we've been really careful to talk to students about whether they've liked that or not. And we've got a 99 percent satisfaction. Students felt it has felt it's easy to access. And although I understand students and of course they do want their learning face-to-face, -face, I think support is different. So I, I really hope that that's acknowledged actually more widely um, and that we keep some of these, um, some of the good things that have happened as a result of the pandemic to allow students to engage in support. We've also seen much higher levels of mature students and BME students, um, BAME students engaging in support as a result of it being um, remote, mm -hmm. remote on site. So they're yeah. really, really positive things and students have adapted really well. I think I think one of the problems is everyone feels a little bit like a first year, <laughs> yeah. including including us sometimes. Um, so lots of general support on site has been a challenge. So students have wanted to ask a lot of questions that perhaps they would have known the answer to as a second and third year. But because they haven't been on site, they don't know. Providing that volume, that level of generalist support has been really important. And we've set up a new way of um answering student inquiries um, this year, because it's been really important that students get their, their questions answered quickly and efficiently. You've touched on the fact that through remote support, you potentially are able to reach more people. I guess there's more flexibility in how you offer it and when and, and so on. So there are definite advantages. Would you plan to now offer an almost hybrid approach to student support? Yes, definitely. Um, so what's worked best has been the specialist support still being delivered online. That's worked really well, the dyslexia mm. support, the mental health support, the um, autistic support to some degree. But we, what we found is we need to have generalist support on site. So yeah. the student can come and ask a question on site and get that answered quite quickly. So yeah. that's changed the way we work um, to some extent because we've had to think about what do we need on site and it's been a learning curve because we didn't know and students didn't particularly know. So what we've done is just recorded what's happened on site and then developed services to meet that need um, and then continued to ask students what they think of that and what, what they want to see. But um, there's def we'll definitely keep the good and we definitely need to uh, continue to develop the way that we work with students and what students want on site as well as remotely. You've mentioned that issue which one wouldn't think of until it's pointed out but it obviously makes sense that students returning to campus mostly now for almost the first time will all have similar questions <laughs> to what ordinarily would just be restricted to first years are there any other key things that you have needed 
sort of deal with with the return to campus would you say that heightened anxiety in returning to campus is a problem or are most students thrilled to be coming back to university what's the general feeling I think there's a bit of both some students are thrilled and they're fine and they settle back and they're in their element but there's other students that find would, would always have found that transition difficult so we are finding that um in terms of well-being reporting that's higher than normal and generally that's quite a lot lot of low level anxiety in terms of um deadlines in terms of meeting the course requirements in terms of sort of settling back in so i think we've all spent quite a lot of time not speaking to other people so those, those you know that I, we expected that we expected naturally that there would be some transition um, support needed and we've tried to yeah. meet that um, as best we can one of the things I'm really keen to develop with students is this understanding about developing your own uh, resilience and your own well-being and using self-help so we're really keen at the moment to find out why students if they don't use that why they don't use it and what can make it better what can make students engage in that because obviously we all need to develop our own strategies and our own well-being and it makes you feel more confident to do so but it's finding something that meets students needs um, and helping with the understanding of why that's important but it it will increase confidence I think it's important to do so that's one of our projects at the moment yeah which would be um, a huge benefit really to the students for life if you can develop those self-coping mechanisms stands you in good stead for all sorts of challenges that might lay ahead um thank you so much for talking to us today um but it's been really interesting hearing a bit more about how you're supporting your students thank you very much for joining us on the podcast thank you Julian Skirm, the Director of Social Responsibility at the University of Manchester. Hello, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Sarah. So the University of Manchester won Times Higher Education's Outstanding Contribution to the Local Community Award last year. Tell us just a little bit about the award-winning program. So the program that we were really proud to win this award for was for our Manchester Engineering Campus Development, which was a £400 million capital program, uh, which I think was, is still the biggest construction program undertaken in British higher education. And the award was for the social value that we created in the process of undertaking that big piece of capital development. Can you tell us a little bit about how the interaction with the community through this program or in general through the university, how has that perhaps changed during COVID during the past year? Yeah, so a lot of the impacts of this project were uh, felt during COVID. I mean, but the planning and the development of the program preceded it. So, Mm. I mean, just to start at the beginning, we did a lot of um, consultation with the community. This was a huge building on the the edge of our campus, which faces a very deprived uh, community on the doorstep of the university. So we spoke to the community about the fact that we were undertaking this big development, but also what their aspirations, what sorts of things they'd like to see come out of this project and when we spoke to them the biggest thing were um, job opportunities for local people but also they recognized there was going to be a lot of skilled people coming in you know um, construction partners quantity surveyors engineers and they were thinking what were the kind of the skills and the resources that such a big project could bring to the local community so that consultation was really important Mm. and then during the pandemic um 
Of course, uh, lots of construction projects carried on in the UK, including this project. So that was something that was still a source of um, important employment opportunities for local people. Now that you are um, at least a year long in this project, it sounds like perhaps a bit more. Um, tell us a few of the kind of learnings that you've had from this project and any sort of lessons that you would pass on to other people working at urban campuses like the University of Manchester about um, perhaps how they could try to do something similar. Yeah, so I think uh, all universities around the world, you know, compared to other parts of the economy have um, been undertaking developments to their campus as, as higher education has grown as a sector around the world. So I think in the, we, so we think the big lesson was we're not just a site of research and teaching for ourselves. Of course, we're, we're charities in the UK, universities are, and that's our prime purpose, you could argue, for our own staff and students. But in the process of um, constructing a new building, something as simple as this, if you see the role of a university as being able to provide social value, Mm. as well in the process of doing this. I think that was the, the lesson for us, that we can create a huge amount of value in this process. So, for example, we created 182 jobs and apprentices as part of this. We um, invested £60,000 in community projects, um, including our local LGBT centre. We helped establish a local food bank. We mm-hmm. did a project on loneliness among older people, mm-hmm. all through the power of the university's communities and connections and, and using that to the benefit of local communities. So we were really proud when we calculated this, there are formulas for doing this. Uh, the project, it created 19.7 million pounds of social value because you can, for every, for example, unemployed person that you bring back into work, that has a financial value to the economy. And Whilst you can't put everything into pounds and pence, our lesson, I guess, was that by calculating things like that, it makes people take notice and stand up and understand that these things are not just uh, nice things to do to get somebody back into work, but they have real um, socioeconomic benefits to Mm. the city, to the region and to the nation. Mm. And certainly, I'm sure it facilitates conversations around the value of projects like that and perhaps initial investment that you need to make in order to, to have that sort of outcome. Yeah, the other thing, I think the other lesson for us was working with a partner. In this case, it was Balfour Beatty and working with a partner who shares the values of the university. So we worked interchangeably as a, as a team on the same page throughout and we really challenged them. Obviously, they were um, we were the client, you know, we really challenged them to be ambitious. And um, I think we we more than achieved what were quite uh quite ambitious goals in the first place we thought we wanted to create at least 110 jobs and apprenticeships and we got 182 so I think um having a a good partner and establishing that from the outset clear objectives um there's amazing things we can do in partnership so the other lesson was don't try and do this ourselves there are people Mm -hmm. who think about this all the time in the construction sector and putting the right targets together as a team is what really helped us make this enormous difference locally yeah that's really impressive that you were able to um increase the number of jobs that you even set out to, to offer to the local community. And it really speaks to the role that universities have within their local communities to be anchors of social good and, and jobs. Is that a, a fair assessment and any thoughts about the role that universities have as being anchors like that? Yeah, I think it's a really good concept and anchor institution. Universities and hospitals are classic anchor institutions because we're not going to move to Leeds, for example, as the University of Manchester, if we could get cheaper labour there, for example. We're, we're rooted here, we're anchored in a literal sense. 
And because of that, and also our roles as being some of the biggest employers and spenders and placemakers in our cities and regions, universities can use that as a force for good. I always say that our university, we're the biggest hotel in Manchester, and people are surprised when they hear that, but we have 9,000 beds every night uh, through our student accommodation. And we're the biggest uh, caterer, for example, when you think about how many people we feed. And so all of this speaks to the fact that as well as being sites of innovation and education and research and discovery, we're also some of the biggest employers, spenders and placemakers. And, and so we have a tremendous opportunity to use that as a force for good and to be true civic institutions and contribute to those social, economic, environmental well-being of the cities and regions in which we're based. Hi, David. So um, David Worsley is Head of Materials Science and Engineering at Swansea University and Principal Investigator on the Sunrise Project, which is an international collaboration between Swansea and a number of other institutions and partners to develop solar power technology in India. And it's this project which won Swansea the THE Award for International Collaboration of the Year in 2020. So can you tell us a bit about the project and sort of how it developed, David? Yeah, hi Miranda, it's great to, great to be with you. Yeah, the, the project actually is something that we um, sort of built on, a, on an existing framework. So we had a, a collection of uh, partners, both in the UK and in India, in the university sector who were working on uh, low cost uh, um, new types of printed PV um, and then we joined up as Sunrise with some industrial partners uh, so that we could not only showcase um, you know the art of the future through the research activities um, but also the art of the uh, as of now in terms of demonstrating what we describe as active buildings in India so, uh, you know, a building or a classroom that can can generate more power than it uses, uh, acting as a, a sort of remote energy hub, for want of a better word, in, in, in a rural location. Fantastic. And has the award win had any impact on the project? I think these sorts of things are really important because they create, um, you know, media coverage, which bring along other interested parties so actually you know subsequent to the award and the press coverage that we received for that um we've uh, engaged additional partnerships now with uh, with uh, some smaller companies in india um and also uh, i think it's been very important from the point of view of the funding agencies that support us um because it sort of underlined the um I'm going to say concrete, although most of what we work on is steel, right, and glass, but it's underlined the um, the firm relationship between uh, the academic partners in, in the UK and India uh, and the interconnected activities between uh, UK and Indian companies. And, and it, it genuinely is an international or bilateral collaboration um, whereby academics and industrialists in, in both countries are working together to deliver against one vision, which is this idea that we can democratise power by getting buildings that are, um, uh, you know, power hubs. Yeah, and um, I mean, I suppose really, you know, winning the award sort of bangs the drum for these kind of international collaborations and hopefully encourages others to do the same. Um, where have you got to with the project? What have you achieved so far? 
Well, uh, yeah, so far we've got um, uh, we've got five rural demonstrators of different scales in in India. In spite of the pandemic conditions, those have uh, been installed. We're just finishing the last two now, which are two buildings as a power station, uh, if you like. Uh, one is in a rural village. The 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 other one is actually on a university campus to map uh, what one we've got in Swansea, which um, will give us some back-to-back data on how the things perform in, in the UK condition, where as I look out of my window now, it's raining uh, compared to India, where it's mostly sunny most of the time, right? So um, that's very important. I think the other thing that's come out of it are long-term um, research partnerships between the institutions in the UK. So um swansea uh, brunel um uh, um lsbu and uh oxford cambridge and imperial in the uk side and then seven institutions in in india um and we're working towards now um you know both expanding the science in in solar energy um but also exploring other um net zero opportunities because actually as we've uh, met with the uh, teams in india uh you know they there a lot of them are working with uh, indeed a common partner in the tata group and uh, it, it's created some good collaborations that go well beyond um the solar work that we started off with yeah fantastic um you touched upon the impact of the pandemic there um, how has it affected the project? Obviously, with that many different partners involved, I imagine it could have thrown up some challenges. How have you sort of dealt with that? I think, you know, obviously, you know, um, particularly on the Indian side, uh, I don't think any one of the partners hasn't been affected by uh, loss and, and challenge, right, during the pandemic. It's been a very difficult period, personally and professionally for everyone. But I think the uh, taking a positive view, uh, if I might be so bold, about what's been learned is actually a lot of the um, interactive mechanisms that we've um, worked on uh, to keep collaboration going when people can't meet physically. Uh, they've actually generated and brought, borne, you know, significant fruit. Uh, an example would be the kind of uh, conferences that you, you you host, oftentimes in a in a face to face environment. You know, those become dominated by uh, discussion between you know eminent professors, let's say, uh, and younger. Uh, ECRs and, and students don't have quite so much time to interact and engage, whereas the the online format, uh, maybe because the uh, old duffers like me can't operate the tech quite so well, uh, or or because more likely the um, the young people are less uh, intimidated by the uh, um, um, venue. Uh, you know, we're getting very good interactivity with with people who wouldn't normally speak at such things. So that's very positive. I think we have also saved a huge amount of CO two not having international conferences. We will want to have those again. You know, because there is something about the human interaction that sparks new ideas. But those things have worked okay. The biggest challenge, I guess, has been operating safely within the uh, research labs. Uh, and in particular, if you imagine we're trying to design and build rural um, uh, buildings and deployments, you know, that uh, has been complicated not only by the pandemic, but by the monsoon Um but we've got through it and 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 uh, and delivered what we wanted to. 
Um, and uh, critically, I think the work is is touching you know many thousands of in, Indian citizens now because uh, uh, you know things like uh, a hospital building that our colleagues in Bangalore have put power on. Um, you know, has you know three or five hundred, three to five hundred people a day going in and out of it. Yeah, amazing. I mean, it's always good to hear some positives coming out of um, the pandemic situation as well, um, alongside the various challenges it's thrown up. And um, just quickly, then to wrap up, what would be the key lessons you would take from your experience with Sunrise for others looking at? developing international collaborative research projects just maybe a few quick fire kind of key ingredients points you know i mean the critical ingredients have a you know a common theme which everyone wants to go for so you know ours was about solar and low-cost pv and and bringing power to the masses you know it was a something that um everyone could subscribe to whether that was the scientist or the villager or indeed the politician in either side uh countries uh, i think um having a team you know who have a personal um interactivity that works you know that's been very important in the pandemic it would be very easy for people who weren't um you know, at ease with one another and talking about things on the internet, let's say, um, you know, to drift apart and, and create sort of a series of separate projects. Uh, so the, the team working is really key. And, and uh, that part of human interaction, you know, we were lucky enough to have kicked off the project before the pandemic. So everybody knew each other really well uh, already. And, and I think that's something you know, in these ambitious grand challenges that uh, cannot be underestimated is the the power, the power of people uh, to bring power to the people, as it were. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.